It's Friday, 17th of November, and this is your Capital Economics Weekly Briefing. I'm David Wilder. Coming up, what's going on with the UK economy, including that CPI data and the coming week's fiscal statement from Chancellor Jeremy Hunt, as well as a special clip from our online client briefing about that Xi-Biden meeting in San Francisco. But first, Neil Shearing is with me again to talk through the week's macro events and what to watch out for. Hi, Neil. Hi, David. I Let's start on, on inflation. Why not? I mentioned that UK CPI data, but we've had some pretty encouraging US price data as well in recent days. If we're not out of the woods on inflation, surely we're at that bit of the wood where the trees are thinning out, aren't we? That appears to be the case. Certainly two very encouraging sets of data from both the US and the UK, as you say. This isn't so much about what's happening with headline inflation, so much as what's happening with the core rates of inflation, both of which were encouraging. Uh, And of course, we're getting all of this, particularly in the US, without much signs of labour market weakening. So if you're sat at the Fed, if you're sat on the MPC at the Bank of England, you will be breathing slightly easier as a result of this. I think the US is a bit further along the curve in terms of disinflation in the UK. So the UK is still kind of in the early foothills of this disinflation process. So encouraging sets of uh, data, certainly, but a bit further to go in the in the UK, I think, before suddenly all clear. In contrast, the Fed a bit further along. And as our US economists have made clear, we can be reasonably confident that the shelter component of the inflation numbers in the US is going to fall further over the coming months. So I think we're pretty much on course for core inflation to be back at kind of low twos by the start of next year. You mentioned the the Fed, the Bank of England, certainly the more closely watched uh, DM central banks. I should note, we're forecasting more rate hikes from the Rix Bank and Norgas Bank at their upcoming meetings. But I mean, putting the Bank of Japan to one side as a special case, these are rarities now among DM banks at this point, right? I mean, the, the whole rate hiking cycle that we've been watching across developed, but also emerging economies over the past 18 months, two years, that, that that's basically over now. Exactly. I think that's right. I mean, we've, we've spoken before in this podcast, haven't we, about whether or not there'll be one more hike in the in the US in December. That's certainly what the, the dot plots were suggesting in those, those September dot plots. We were always sceptical that that would be the case. I think that the inflation data that we've had over the past week is the final nail in that particular coffin. So yes, I think most uh, DM central banks are done with their hiking cycle. The big question then becomes, of course, when will the loosening cycle uh, begin? When will the easing cycle begin? And how aggressive will, will it be? Uh, our sense on that is that the inflation outlook, particularly in the US, is a bit better than the Fed and other central banks expects. And inflation will come down a bit faster and a bit further than central banks are expecting. So the, the, the monetary easing cycle might arrive sooner and might be slightly larger than central banks and the markets are expecting, particularly, like I say, in the US. Well, a big part of that question, I guess, is what has been the impact of all of this monetary tightening on economic growth. There's been lots of talk about soft landings uh, this past week. You've written extensively about paths to a soft landing. Uh, Big releases, I guess, for the coming week are the flash PMIs. Do you think they're going to strengthen the case for that? Certainly, the survey data over the past several months has been pretty disappointing. Now, in the case of Europe, the Eurozone, the UK, that has been mirrored too in weakness in the activity data. We're speaking on Friday. We've just had some weak retail sales numbers out of the UK. In the US, we've also had weakness in the survey data, but that has not been mirrored in weakness in the hard activity data. We've had that stonking Q3 GDP number from the US 
and it looks like Q4 is lining up to okay, be a bit slower, but but not disastrous either at this stage. So in the US, there's this disconnect between the survey data and the activity data, the hard activity data that we're not necessarily seeing play out in Europe. And that makes it quite difficult to get a read on exactly what's going on, particularly in the in the US economy. Now, I think you're right. There's always been, as we've made the point in our research, there's always been a path to a soft landing because of the unusual nature of this cycle. I've used the technical term weird in the past, but that the, the weirdness of this cycle and the effect that the pandemic had on supply sides of economies meant to our mind that the analogy was much closer with what happened after the Second World War than say the 1970s, where, where some people have reached to when we had these for comparisons, where we had the, the initial surge in inflation. So there was always this path to a soft landing. The question is, would we uh, get there? Could policymakers navigate their economies there? The flash PMIs will help shed a bit more light on that. But like I say, that the, the, there's been this disconnect between the, the, the soft and the hard activity data. If you step back, however, I think it's difficult to see how the US can avoid a pretty sharp slowdown in growth over the next quarter or so, given the, the scale of the, the policy tightening that we've had over the past year. So sharp slowdown in growth, does that mean recession or no recession? Well, this is the question that I think is that we're often asked, and it's the question that's being asked in the financial press. Um, now, without get using my kind of usual economist way out of this, I think it misses the point. That is to say that you know, whether or not an economy is in recession is not a very useful guide as to what the economic consequences or the market fallout from that recession might be, because recessions come in many different flavors. Now, one issue is kind of defining whether or not an economy is in recession. The conventional benchmark is two successive quarters of negative GDP growth. Well, on that metric, the US economy contracted in Q1 and Q2 of 2022, but no one's seriously suggesting it was in recession at that point. You know, the economy added over two and a half million jobs in that period. These were not recessionary conditions. The NBER, of course, in the US uh, and its Business Dating Cycle Committee has the job of calling whether or not the economy is in recession using a variety of data that that I think is a, a, a better way of thinking about uh, recession. But of course, that's more complicated. The data they use come with a lag. And of course, no other country has this process. So that makes it more difficult to to compare and contrast what's happening in, in different economies. So defining recession is difficult, but I think the other point often gets missed is that there are different types of recessions. So if you think back to the kind of 2007-8 financial crisis recession, that was a balance sheet recession really. It was a, precipitated by large collapse in asset prices, problems in the banking sector, the need for deleveraging and, and repairing balance sheets that, that followed that recession. And those types of recessions that are accompanied by these large falls in asset prices, often problems in the housing market, a, that they tend to be much deeper, but also the recoveries tend to be much slower, often not a full recovery, so GDP doesn't return to trend, and that was the same after the, the Great Depression too. Then you have something like a kind of run-of-the-mill, plain vanilla cyclical recession. So if you think about what happened to the UK in the early 1990s, for example, um, perhaps the US in the early 2000s, falls in output more modest, monetary and fiscal support that ensues more moderate, but the recovery comes through more quickly and it tends to be more complete and the, the, there's no lasting damage. And then you have what we call growth recession. So in those circumstances, the economy doesn't necessarily contract, but you do get a prolonged period where, where GDP growth is below trend, below its potential. That can coincide and often causes increases in joblessness and unemployment. 
and slacken economy. So you get these different flavors of recessions. Now, all of those generate disinflation pressures to a greater or lesser extent. All of those uh, involve some economic pain and mean that living standards will be lower than is otherwise the case. But of course, the, the economic consequences, both in the near term and the long term, very, very different. And so are the market consequences. So I think it's worth thinking about it through those frameworks. If we get up, not are we going to get a recession or, or won't we get a recession, but also what type of recession? And I think you know, a run-of-the-mill cyclical recession in Europe and the UK, I think, is probably more likely than not. I think it's probably 50-50 at this stage in the US, frankly. But I think all economies are going to have this growth-type recession. So we're in for a period of, of certainly weaker growth in the US, even if we don't get outright recession. Okay, let's move away from from the whole inflation growth question. I, and look instead at this call in Germany. This past week, it has ruled that 60 billion euros in climate funds were unconstitutionally earmarked. They've been taken out of this pot marked for the pandemic, and the court basically ruled that the, that, that wasn't allowed. So it looks like a 60 billion euro hole in Germany's green transition ambitions. Stepping back, what does this say about how countries are going to meet their, their emissions targets in the coming years, given, given the type of politics that are involved? Well, I think the politics of greening economies is incredibly complicated and difficult. And that's a point we've been making on our, our climate economic service. But I think one of the points worth stressing is when there's a political will, they will f- tend to find a way. And I suspect there probably is a political will in the case of, of Germany to, to do this. So it, it's certainly awkward from a fiscal perspective, because of course, next year is supposed to be the year where EU fiscal rules kick in and Germany's going to want to be pushing other countries in Europe towards fiscal rectitude. So having a budget standoff and uh, it, it is is not uh, great optics. Now, coming back to that point about how this relates to the green transition and climate change, one of the issues that repeatedly comes up in client conversations is that it's difficult to step back from the daily ebb and flow of news around climate commitments and keep track of exactly what's going on in practice. Um, so in response to this, we've developed a suite of tools to help clients undertake a more data-driven approach to this. They're designed to give clear, quantifiable assessments of how countries stand relative to the green transition, but also, and critically, where they're likely to stand in the coming years and decades. And actually, that produces some really interesting insights. So there's a bunch of European economies at the top of those rankings. France leads the way. Germany, which we've just talked about, is fifth. But I think one of the more interesting points is where China ranks in our uh, green transition scores. So clearly, China comes under the spotlight a lot given heavy use of coal. It's the world's largest producer of emissions and has a very low score uh, for its current ranking on our green transition scores. But when we look to future, because we, we, like I say, we, we, this is also where they're going to stand in the coming years and decades, when we look to the future, Actually, China does rather better. It's investing a lot. It's committed a lot of funds, a lot of resources to to, to green technologies. So I think this, this is a really good example of where some of the these important changes and shifts get missed in the in the daily ebb and flow of news. And like I say, underlines underlines the need for a, a more data driven approach. Neil Shearing there on quantifying the green transition. Our new climate reporting tools will be out on CE Advance, our premium platform, on Tuesday. So look out for those and we'll be all over those PMIs as they're released. So watch out for the analysis across our macro services. Uh, that includes our global economics 36,000 foot coverage of the surveys and how they compare across DMs and EMs. 
Now, the big geopolitical story of the past week was the summit between Joe Biden and Xi Jinping in San Francisco. This was pitched as a low expectation summit designed really to get a deteriorating bilateral relationship back on track. And by all accounts, it succeeded on that front. But should we expect improvement from here with clear deliverables and deals getting done? Well, that's a bit more complicated, as we explained to clients in a drop-in, one of our short-form webinars that we held shortly after the meeting. It was also also the day we launched our new fracturing dashboard. Now, this is a unique interactive view of the shape of a global economy increasingly divided into competing US and Chinese economic blocks. I'll link to our guide to that dashboard in the podcast notes. It shows you the size of these US and Chinese aligned blocks in terms of everything from goods and services trade to capital markets, but also highlights the key issues within this concept of fracturing or fragmentation, such as the renminbi versus the dollar. In the drop-in, we talked about the dashboard in the context of what it says about US-China fracturing. And in this clip from the briefing, you'll hear Mark Williams, our chief Asia economist, talking to Julian Evans Pritchard, our head of China economics. And it starts with Julian discussing why a broad agreement between the US and China that would restore fraying economic ties looks unlikely. You have to remember that we're going into election season in the US, in which the candidates are likely to be competing over how tough they are on China. And I think more importantly, the sort of grand bargain approach was tried under the Trump administration, if you recall, the phase one trade deal, where both sides agreed to various reforms. And it, the Chinese side agreed to, to some reforms and, and uh, step up in purchases. And in, in response to that, the US agreed to lower some of the tariffs, but it didn't really work out. I mean, the, the Chinese side didn't really follow through on their commitments. And of course, as we now know, the US, that didn't prevent a further deterioration uh, being uh, pushed from, from the US uh, side and further decoupling. So I think fundamentally, yes, there could be more done to achieve the deal. But the real issue here is that the economic models of the two countries are different. The political models of the two countries are different, and it's very hard to reconcile those differences. It was possible when China had a much smaller weight in the global economy. But now that it's such an important player, you know, the, the, I just see there's just not room for two uh, with such different growth models to, to kind of get, get along together as well as, as might be the case for, for other countries. What's your, your sort of um, sense of, of the story of the past three years at the Biden presidency and how that's affected um, US-China relations? Now, I think, I guess, when Trump left office, maybe there were people who thought that that would lead to kind of better relationship between the US and China, but that hasn't really been, been the case. No, I mean, Biden's taken a different approach. It's been a bit more targeted. But in the areas where he has targeted, he's come down very, very hard, you know, such as export controls on semiconductors, semiconductor machinery has done a great deal of damage to China's semiconductor sector in terms of its access to, to foreign technology. And obviously, just purely in diplomatic terms, I think it's fair to say that the relationship is even more strained than it was under Trump. And certainly when you look at the kind of flow of people between the two countries, the flow of capital, all of that has declined significantly. The one area, I guess, where we're still seeing quite substantial ties is on trade. Having said that, we are starting to see some decline uh, in the share of global trade that's happening between uh, China and not just the US, but the US bloc as a whole. And that's something that, that our dashboard really helps to capture as these broader dependencies between blocks, not just between 
uh, individual countries. Uh, and the trade between what we consider the China bloc and what we consider the US bloc, the share of global trade between those two blocks is now uh, at its lowest since 2007. So we are seeing some form of decoupling in trade, but the overall trade relationship is still quite large. And part of that is because the pandemic created all these supply chain shortages uh, and China was one of very few countries that could meet uh, the extremely strong demand for, for goods during the pandemic. And so that's kept those relationships perhaps stronger than they w otherwise would have been. Um, but those effects are now starting to fade and we're now starting to see some of the, the impact of, of fracturing. Having said that, it's important, to, I think, to note that a lot of the uh, fracturing we're seeing, the trade data is essentially trade being rerouted through third countries. So exports from China being rerouted through countries, particularly in Southeast Asia, on their way to the US. So a lot of the, the um, dependencies in terms of final demand and production are still there. It's just that some of the direct trade linkages are starting to, to shift and supply chains are starting to be rejigged in response to these geopolitical forces. There's two ways you, you can read that. I mean, some people are saying that because it's simply shifting kind of the end of the supply chain to Southeast Asia, this isn't really decoupling. But the other way to look at it is, is that this is how it begins. This is how supply chains always shift. And indeed, this is how China ended up being so dominant is that initially it was the end of supply chains were, were shifted to, to, to China. And then over time, more and more of the supply chains were within uh, China. I want to uh, yeah, think about the US election in a year's uh, time. What difference do you think uh, potentially a, a return of President Trump could could make, both to the, sort of the narrow US-China issue, but more broadly to this topic of global fracturing? Yeah, good question. I think, you know, as we've seen, Trump uh, has quite a different approach to international elections compared to Biden. I don't think he would necessarily reverse the changes that, that the sort of tightening of export controls that Biden has put in place, although he might be slightly more willing to kind of use them as a as a bargaining chip. But there's also a risk that he could impose greater tariffs on, on China again if he feels that that's a popular move with the electorate. And it's worth noting that you know, the popular opinion of China among the US electorate is far more negative now than it was when Trump was was first elected. So wider point on fracturing, the, the, bigger, the biggest risk of a Trump administration, I think, is that he could undermine some of the work that the Biden administration has done in trying to convince its allies to take a tougher approach with China and take a sort of united stance. Uh, and that's been particularly apparent in areas like semiconductor controls, where they've managed to convince the Japanese and the, the Dutch uh, and even the Koreans to some degree to get on board. And also more generally in terms of their outreach, uh, particularly in, within Asia, upgrading ties with Vietnam and Indonesia, for example. I think the risk is that Trump could take a much more isolationist approach, lash out, not just at China, but at many other you know, countries that otherwise would potentially be allies or at least leaning towards the US in this wider US-China competition. Uh, and as a result, the US bloc potentially fracture into multiple blocks, be, be less united as a result, which would obviously make uh, the whole situation even more um, messy than it, than it already is. Yeah, indeed. I mean, one of the key, I think, findings of, of, of the, the work we've done on this is that, is that right now, and um, for the foreseeable future, 
the, the, the US block is substantially bigger than the, the China block, given its current composition. And that means, it, I mean, that, that there's a kind of a geopolitical power point there, but also simply in terms of the ability of the two blocks to adapt to pressure to move supply chains and so on, it's a lot easier if you've got a larger uh, block and a more diverse block. So maybe you know, the big risk here to the sort of central scenario that we've mapped out is that the US block doesn't hold together. Um, because if the US goes on its own way and let's say the rest of the West holds together, then you end up with three roughly equal sized blocks in the world economy, a kind of isolationist US, the rump of the West plus a China block. And that changes a lot of the a lot of the potential impact in terms of financial market impact, inflation, output, and so on. I think we, that certainly is a much more plausible scenario if Trump gets back in. I mean, he's talking about, what, 10% tariff on all imports. So, you know, his first presidency was, was you know, he did things against other trading partners, but China was was really the center of, of, of his efforts. But 10% tariff on all imports would, would surely free ties with, with traditional allies. And then there's, you know, potential for pulling out the WTO and all kinds of Thing. So I think that that is, you know, would really shake things up. That was Mark Williams and Julian Evans Pritchard on US-China relations, global economic fracturing and how the whole situation would be shaken up even more by the return of Donald Trump to the White House. It was an edited clip from a much longer client briefing whose discussion took in everything from uh, what's happening with FDI flows into China, as well as looking at how allegiances between the US and China blocks have shifted over the past year with special focus on what's happening with Saudi Arabia's relations with Washington and Beijing. You can find the whole briefing on our events page, along with recordings of our other regular drop-in briefings with clients. Again, look out for that report on the shape of a fractured world, which I'll put on the podcast page. Finally, for the UK, the big macro event for the coming week will be the Chancellor's autumn statement. Jeremy Hunt's going to be delivering his fiscal plans in an address to the House of Commons on Wednesday. And our UK team has been preparing clients on what to expect. Chief UK economist Paul Dales and Deputy Chief UK economist Ruth Gregory talked through our expectations and here's that conversation now. You'll hear Ruth first outlining Jeremy Hunt's tricky task of managing political versus economic realities when he speaks to the yeah, Commons. I think the Chancellor, he's under under more pressure than ever, isn't he, to pull something out of the bag in the autumn statement. But he is in a difficult position. He needs to juggle the political pressure to please his own MPs, to announce a pre-election package that plays well with the voters in the next election and maintain fiscal discipline, placate financial markets against a really weak economic backdrop. I think the result may be a fiscal announcement that neither significantly boosts the government standings in the polls or the economy. We think the Chancellor may announce a net fiscal giveaway, perhaps of around 9 billion or 0.3% of GDP in five years time in 2027-28. And he'll probably try and aim as get to get as much uh, bang from as few bucks as possible with the autumn statement focusing on growing the economy, boosting business investment. And he also seems quite anxious, doesn't he, about not to be seen to be fueling inflation. So I think the Chancellor will probably target tax cuts that are perceived to be less inflationary, whether that's uh, a cut in inheritance tax rate, perhaps from 40% to 20%. Um, the cancelling of the halving in the stamp duty threshold that's currently due to take place in March 2025. But I think to put this overall fiscal giveaway into context, 
it is likely to be uh, perhaps very modest and perhaps similar in size to the giveaway that we saw back in the March budget. Well, I mean, this is all really fascinating, isn't it? Because we know that the um, Chancellor needs to do something to try and improve the standing of the government in the polls. But we also know that the economic backdrop is hardly great here in the UK. The economy has essentially been stagnating. Interest rates have um, risen quite rapidly over the last 18 months or so. So can you explain how it is that the Chancellor has any money to give away? Yeah, I think we expect the Office for Budget Responsibility in its forecasts to unveil pretty significant downward revisions to its fairly upbeat forecast for GDP growth in 2024 and 2025. After all, if you look at the OBR's latest forecasts of growth of 1.8% in 2024 and 2.5% in 2025, that's well above the consensus forecasts. I think the good news for the Chancellor, though, is that Nominal GDP is more important for the public finances since tax revenues are levied on nominal spending, income, profits, and with inflation running well ahead of the OBR's um, expectations. Um, I think the OBR's forecast for nominal GDP will probably be revised up. That will feed through to higher tax revenues for the government, higher wage growth um, than the OBR expected back in March. That's also likely to drive up income tax revenues. Admittedly, there are some factors working in the other direction. Most notably, the rise in interest rates since March will probably add to the government's debt interest bill. But I think that the increase that we'll see in borrowing from higher interest rates, that's only likely to partially offset the big boost to tax receipts from higher nominal GDP, inflation and wages. So I think the big picture is that the OBR's borrowing and debt to GDP ratio forecast will be revised lower. And that will mean that the Chancellor's buffer or his headroom that he has against his fiscal rules may double, perhaps from £6.5 in March to around £12 the fiscal rule thing is really interesting here because it means there's always a little bit of a political game um, because the fiscal rule that is determining how much the Chancellor has to give away on or has to raise money is is that one you said that the debt to GDP ratio needs to be fallen in five years time. Um, So the level of the debt to GDP ratio, which in the UK is around 90% at the moment, is is just irrelevant, really. It just needs to be fallen in that one year, in five years' time. And that determines how much money can be given away. So it's a bit unusual, but um, it does seem as though, from what you're saying with the analysis, there is going to be a bit of money there, and he's going to spend or use up a good chunk of it for political purposes. That means there's not actually going to be that much left over how much do you think will be left over the sort of the so-called headroom and how does that compare to previous chances is is hunt you know cutting it pretty slim or is he giving himself himself a nice buffer for any surprises coming around the corner yeah i think if we were to see such a net fiscal giveaway that might use up about 70 percent of the available headroom so it would use as you say it would use up a fair chunk of that headroom um And, you know, putting that headroom into context, if you look at the headroom, how that compares to buffers that previous chancellors have had against their fiscal rules, 12 billion is pretty slim. If you look at the average since 2010, that headroom was around 25 billion. And I think what's striking is that the headroom is unusually slim at a time when the inflation and interest rates risks Mm. are unusually high. So, 
in our analysis, we set out a number of illustrative scenarios that demonstrate even small changes to the OBR's forecast for growth, for interest rates, for inflation, wage growth, that's sufficient to wipe out the headroom. So I think against the, the current economic and fiscal backdrop, even a small pre-election giveaway, I think would leave the chances of fiscal rules on pretty shaky ground. Speaking of shaky ground, it was only this time a year ago that the UK fiscal position was on really shaky ground after the, the so-called mini budget of Liz Trust quasi quartang. As we know, at that point, the bond markets really took fright at their fiscal plans or, well, I guess, lack of fiscal discipline. Hunt then came in, steadied the ship by announcing a really big fiscal tightening over the next five years of about 1.3% of GDP. So this is eroding that a little bit more. Is this something that you know the financial markets will be worried about or is it just the very nature that Hunt and Sunak are in charge now and that's that's enough for them? Yeah, it, it will it will erode that big uh, fiscal tightening that you mentioned back in November 2022 after the Trust Quartang um, mini budget fallout. That that planned fiscal tightening of 1.3% of GDP might be reduced. It was reduced to 1.0% in March. It might be reduced to around uh, 0.7%. Uh, I think the big picture is that it's chipping away at that tightening, but the big picture is that most of that tightening is still in place. I think you know, he's sticking within his fiscal rules and that's likely to placate the financial markets. If the Chancellor was to ditch or, 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 or loosen his fiscal rules, then mm-hmm. I think that would probably go down very badly with the financial <laughs> markets. You know, they, they might deem that to be a trust quartang mark too, perhaps. Yeah, okay. So sticking to the fiscal rules and just squeezing as much political gain out of them is, is, is acceptable. The other thing I suppose here that's really quite interesting is these fiscal forecasts are set for the next five years and tax plans for the next five years. That's a pretty long time in politics. I mean, it might be the case. There's even rumours that the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, will be removed from his position by the next budget event in March, with the idea being that if Sunak might want to put in someone who's more inclined to make a really big splash ahead of the general election that might be in late 2024. And I guess the bigger issue then is, well, at that general election, we might get a Labour government What's your sense on how a Labour government would behave fiscally? Would you see a landslide change or is it more of the same, just a different colour? Yeah, I think more of the latter, perhaps. While a Labour government might have different thinking and we may see a different tax spend split, I think the fiscal challenges will remain. So I think whoever is Chancellor in the Mar- in, in the March budget and whoever is in government next autumn, I think they'll still face the same economic and fiscal reality. The other big development recently in the UK has been the very favourable inflation figures, which fell very sharply in October, taking the CPI inflation rate down to 4.6% which allowed the Prime Minister to gloat that he has successfully halved inflation. You know, we could debate whether he had anything to do with that or not. I mean, maybe we should, but I think the short answer is probably didn't have much to do with it, but he's trying to take as much credit anyway. How does that fall in inflation play into what Jeremy Hunt might talk about next week in the autumn statement? Well, lower inflation, it can actually be a bad thing for the for the public finances in the short term as it reduces tax revenues that are linked to inflation, including duties and business rates and student loans. 
However, the Chancellor could use it to play to his advantage. It's been rumoured that he could use the fall in inflation to uprate working age benefits in line with October's CPI inflation rate of 4.6% rather than September's inflation rate of 6.7% as planned. So he may be able to use it to his advantage a, a little bit, I think. Well, they'll try anything, won't they? Speaking about um, inflation, I guess one of our big views here is that um, inflation will continue to fall. Um, but perhaps it might fall a little bit more slowly, especially on the core or underlying measures than a lot of people are expecting. And that's why we think the Bank of England will have to keep interest rates on hold at their current peak of five and a quarter percent, perhaps for a bit longer than most people expect. So whereas the markets are pricing the first interest rate cut around the middle of next year, we've not got one in our forecast until the end of next year. So that might not help the public finances too much. But then the big story for us in 2025 is that interest rates might actually come down quite sharply, which actually would help the public finances figures bring down borrowing a bit quicker. And that might, I suppose, mean that there is some better fiscal news coming around the corner. But that fiscal news, I suppose, might be to the benefit of a Labour government rather than a Tory government if Labour were to win the next election in late 2024. That was Paul Dales and Ruth Gregory on the UK Autumn Statement. I'll link to their preview on the podcast page and they'll be providing coverage with the rest of the team through the day Wednesday with instant reactions, in-depth analysis and an online briefing. You'll find all of that on our website, capitaleconomics.com. And don't forget, if you're a CE Advanced subscriber, you get access to all our insight, all our data and much more details on site. But that's it for this week. Until next time, goodbye. Whilst this podcast is provided with all reasonable skill and care, it comprises the subjective views of our economists. Furthermore, these views are not opinions, nor do they constitute investment or financial advice, or are they guarantees or reassurances to the expected results of any investment products or outcome. You should seek your own specific advice in relation to questions you may have. We will have no liability to you in relation to this podcast whatsoever.